Well, please join me now in 1 Corinthians 15. It's our first Sunday in a brand new year, and we're moving right back into the study that we've been in through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, a series we've been calling Real Church. And uh, we've, we've enjoyed the Christmas month where we looked at some passages that reminded us of the beauty of the incarnation, God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Tommy preached us a wonderful word last week that I enjoyed also hearing and online. And, and now we're back into 1 Corinthians. And today, a beautiful passage, I think a very timely word for us as we begin this new year, reminding ourselves of what is the central message for us as a church. What's the central message for us as believers in Jesus Christ? Maybe you haven't thought of it this way, but your life has been carrying out a message. Whatever you've been into, whatever you've been talking to people about in your life, that has been your life message. And so today, though, is a chance to compare that message that you've been proclaiming by your life and words with what should be your message. You know, some people present this message to a watching world. Some present the message that money is your great hope because that's what they chase. That's what they're preoccupied with. They're proclaiming to others, follow me as I pursue money as the great hope. Can I remind you, that's not the gospel. Other people chase activities, and maybe, maybe you're among those. You're a very busy person, and you're involved in all kinds of things, and you may be proclaiming to a watching world that you know all of these activities is where you're going to find your hope, but that's not the gospel. Some people sadly turn to things like drugs and alcohol and immorality, and they're chasing those things. And what they're doing by chasing those, they're proclaiming a message to all their friends and family. This is where you will find hope. It's just not true. That's not the gospel. Now, others, though, would say, well, I'm not like that. But I proclaim a message that friendliness and good morals and good citizenship, there's where you're going to find hope. And in reality, that's not the gospel either, to just chase after being kind. So, let me ask you, what has been your message to the world? And has your message been the right message? Has your message with your life been the true message? Let's, say, let's ask it this way. Has your gospel been the gospel? And so let's look together now at what is the message that we should be proclaiming. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes as the Spirit guides him. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. 
It's been a while since we've been in 1 Corinthians, but let's just remind ourselves what's happening in this wonderful book of the Bible. Paul has been writing to a very troubled church. It's a church that he had planted some years before. It's a church he still loved, but it was a church divided in many embarrassing ways. It was a church dysfunctional in many ways. And yet Paul is calling this church back to a, a pure devotion to Christ, to love each other, remember chapter 13, calling them back to the truth, calling them back to unity together as the body of Christ. And now here in chapter 15, Paul reminds them and us as we listen in to the heart of our message, what we call the gospel, which simply means good news. So the first point for us this morning is this, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Again, verse one. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. And verse three again. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Notice with me that Paul said, this is of first importance. Of all the things that we talk about and all the things that we could talk about, even coming from the scriptures, what is of first importance, Paul said, this gospel message, this good news is of first importance. And he presents here the facts of the gospel. And there are three core facts in this message that is ours. First of all, Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel. There's a second core fact, that Christ was buried. And that signifies that he did, in fact, literally die for us. He was buried in a tomb. And then the third core fact of the gospel is that Christ was raised from the dead on the third day. So notice that the true gospel is all about the person and the work of Jesus. The heart of our gospel is the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus. And we don't turn to any other counterfeit gospel. This has been the gospel from the beginning. Now, these 2,000 years later, we're still preaching this gospel. Now, you do know that many believers or so-called believers and many, we would say so-called churches, have moved off of this gospel. And I know this because in my elementary years, the, the church my family went to, they did not preach that gospel. I was familiar with Jesus dying and all that, but the message preached week after week was really this message. Be nice. That was the gospel preached. And so basically it was this. Jesus was nice. You be nice. You be, you be kind. You be friendly. And looking back, I failed even at that false gospel. So when you hear a pastor preach week after week, be nice, be a better version of yourself, be good. You know what my little elementary brain did? I thought, I am nice. And who's nicer than I am? I had a little elementary self-righteousness <laughs> hearing that message. And, uh, but even looking back now, I see, oh, I wasn't nearly as nice as I thought I was. I was nice to my friends. Oh, but now I look back and think, oh, but I was very unkind. I was not nice to people who were not my friends at school. I was failing even at that wrong gospel. Listen, being nice, trying to be nice, it's a nice thing. It just can't save you. That's not the gospel. If you could go to heaven by being nice, Jesus would have never come. He would have never given his body and blood on a cross. That's not the gospel. Neither is the gospel the golden rule. Some people feel that way. I'm, I'm clearly right with God because I try to do to others is I'd have them do to me. It's a great thing. Jesus taught the golden rule. He just never told you that's the gospel. Jesus went to the cross 
to make a way for us. That's the gospel. Neither is keeping the Ten Commandments your way to be saved or any other set of religious rules. You can't save yourself that way. Such thinking, is, it misdiagnoses the problem. Our problem is that we're not nice enough. The problem is the Bible says we are dead in our sins. We're alienated from God. We need somebody other than us to rescue us from all of this sin, all of this guilt in our lives. So you're not your Savior by trying harder. You need to receive a Savior, Jesus, who's come for you. And also notice this. This is not our gospel, telling everybody about our views and opinions about everything. Maybe you're known for that. I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, but maybe, maybe you're known for that. That Everybody knows what you think. You've got strong sports opinions and you'll fight people about sports. And you've got strong political opinions and you're kind of known for that. Uh, there's, there's a time and place for those conversations, but that's not our gospel. Nobody's going to be saved because of your opinion on how people ought to eat or something else like that. We have a gospel and the gospel is all about the death of Jesus for our sins and his burial. And on the third day, his being raised from the dead. Now, why is that good news that Jesus died for us? Because Jesus dying for us displays the height and the depths of God's great love for us and demonstrates for us God's amazing grace toward us. Jesus, think of it, he died for our sins. You do know that Jesus did not die for his own sins. Why not? Because Jesus had no sins. Isn't that amazing? Unlike us, who we don't have to look very hard to see a list of our shortcomings and our sins and all that, Jesus had never sinned, where he lived a perfect life, the only one who ever has lived a perfect life. Every attitude right, every motivation always right, every word right on target, never a moment of regret for any sin. Every action was right, never resisted the Father's will, the only one to do that. So Jesus did not die for his sins. He had none. He died for us. And he did not die as a victim. He gave himself as a sacrifice for us. He was our substitute on the cross for all of our guilt. Jesus took that upon himself. He died for that. And he was raised. So this is good news of God's love for us. This is good news of God's grace toward us. Just as the angel said when Jesus first came, the angel announced he will save his people from their sins. And indeed he did. John 1.29, we're told this, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this gospel, this good news is that Jesus died to save us from our sins. And we ask this question, well, how so? How does he save me from my sins? Let's consider this, first of all, that he saves you from the penalty of your sin. And that's glorious. I mean, that would be enough. We, we would all leave here in a moment thinking, that is amazing love that he made a way that I would not be condemned for all of my sins. And it's true. When you die and you face the Lord in judgment, if you have believed in Jesus Christ in this biblical way, you will not perish at that judgment, along with those who will perish at that judgment. You won't. You've been saved. Instead of perishing because you believed in Jesus, you will enter into everlasting life. You will enjoy the Lord forever. So that is glorious. Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, if you have believed in him, has saved you from the ultimate penalty of sin. But he didn't just do that. He has saved you from the power of sin right now in your life. 
He saves you from what I'll call the poison of sin that's still a part of our experience. So he didn't just come to take you to heaven eventually, though he did do that, but he came to break the power of sin that you would no longer live in its poisonous grip. He's given you now new power to overcome all those struggles and sins in your life. We know this because the Bible teaches it. Romans 6 says this, that sin shall no longer be your master if you are in Jesus Christ. Maybe you remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we were there some months ago, where we saw for the believer, with every temptation we face, there is now always a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Or how about this verse? 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Right here in the present tense. We're awaiting this glorious dimension of our salvation to come where we won't experience the penalty. But right now he's broken the power of sin that we don't have to be slaves to it any longer. Now somebody might ask this question. Well, if I know I'm not going to be condemned for my sin, what's to keep me from keeping on in this sin? If I'm not going to perish in it, why not just live a life fulfilling all of my sinful desires? Well, I'll give you two reasons why you don't want to do that. If you're a child of God, you don't want to do that because now you have a new nature. Sadly, embarrassingly, we still face temptations even as the children of God. There's that lingering old nature, our old sin nature we still contend with daily throughout the day. You've noticed that you have these temptations. But what we have found now that we're in Christ... We still contend with that old nature, but oh, we have a new nature. And so when we sin now as the children of God, here's the word we feel. This is how I describe it today. We feel gross. You know that experience? You've, you're a believer. You love Jesus. You want to please God. But here's that old temptation. And you step into that old temptation. You can't enjoy that sin like you once did. And though you've tried it and tried it again, you, you immediately feel God's displeasure. We sometimes see that in the scriptures as the idea of we grieve the Holy Spirit. And because he loves us, he grieves us as his children. He lets you know, hey, that's not good. That's not what I've called you to. You can't do that. There's a misery that comes to the child of God when we try to go back and live the old way that we did. So why, why not live for sin knowing that I'm saved? Because you will be miserable because God won't let you be happy in sin anymore. You have a new nature that wants to please God. But here's another reason why you would not want to continue in the sin that he saved you from, because sin brings pain. Let's just think together with clear minds. Sin is a poison. So when God calls you and me out of sin, he's not trying to keep pleasant things from you. He's not trying to keep fun from you. He's trying to keep you from toxins. So let's just illustrate that. Let's think it through a moment. One of the sins that we are to avoid is the sin of adultery. And the sin of adultery, it is devastating to a family, isn't it? So if your family's ever been touched by that, it, it wrecks you. It wrecks the innocent party. It wrecks the children. It tears homes apart. And we say, when God lovingly commands us, hey, don't do that. It's because he loves you. It's a toxin that he wants you to avoid. But you say, well, that's an extreme example. I, I wouldn't do that. Well, let's talk about some of those things that we estimate as lesser. And I want you to see they also are toxins that you have been saved from even in the now, that you don't want to pursue these. Let's talk about the sin of pride. Just that alone. You think about the sin of pride. If you operate out of pride where you think you're better than everybody else, 
where you won't say you're sorry to other people because you don't think you're capable or you don't need to apologize to these other people less than you. You are bringing toxins into every relationship that you have. God has saved you from that pride or bitterness. That's a toxin or ungodly jealousy. What about things like gossip? If you're a gossip, you just like to tell tales and you're stirring up strife everywhere you go. You are bringing toxins in and God has saved you from that, even from your mouth. What about lying? He said, well, it's not as bad as adultery. But how would you have a relationship with somebody if you can't trust the things that they say? It's a toxin. You've been saved from that. Don't walk in that any longer. Stinginess versus generosity. How about anger? We so often excuse that. Most of the time, it's not righteous anger. To be a hothead is a toxin. Violence, of course. Theft addictions. We say, I want to be saved from those now, not just the penalty to come. Thank the Lord. He has set us free from that. Though we're tempted, we don't have to now go back in this. So great news, power to overcome now and freedom from the penalty to come at the judgment. And so Paul is overjoyed in this gospel, the death of Jesus for our sins, the burial of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. And Paul was single-minded about this message. In fact, he told us back in chapter two, verse two, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So today, this first Sunday of a new year, would you together with me remember this gospel? Then this, would you receive this gospel? Remember it, but make sure you're among those who have received this gospel. This takes us back to verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Now listen to this. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Notice this gospel, this message of good news, good news is to be embraced. The facts of the gospel are to, be, are to be decided upon. You are to respond to these facts. And we know how this works. A lot of sickness going around. Almost every family I know of in the church had some kind of illness over the last several weeks. And some of you likely went to the doctor and the doctor may have prescribed something. And you know how this works. For that medicine to do you any good, you have to go pick it up from your pharmacy. And even if you picked it up from the pharmacy, if you took that, that medicine and stuck it in your cabinet and didn't take it, still doing you no good. So to get the benefit from the medicine offered to you, you have to take it and receive it. You're going to have to ingest it. And this is the gospel. It's not enough just to be aware of these gospel facts. Yes, I believe that historically he died, someone might say. Well, of course, I believe he was buried. And even if you could say, and I believe it was raised from the dead, but I'm not going to receive him as my Lord and as my Savior would benefit you nothing. This is a message to which you must respond if you would be saved. And we see this throughout the New Testament. Romans 10, 10 and following. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
So you hear this message of good news that he would save you from your sins. Your response is to say, I'll take it. I'll take you, Jesus. You gave your life for me. I want you to be my savior. I want you to be my Lord. John chapter one, verses 11 and 12. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So the facts of the gospel, these are not in the category of neutral facts. These are facts you believe on, and it changes your life. It changes your eternal destiny. There are some facts that we would say it's in the category of neutral. So for instance, if I were to tell you today that water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. By the way, I looked it up again today. Make sure I was right. It's been a long time since I heard it in school. Am I right about that? But if I were to tell you that, it's just kind of a good to know category. There's nothing you need to do with that. If I were to tell you that the sky is typically blue, you, you, yeah, first you'd say, I know that. And there's nothing though you and I are to do about it. That's not calling for anything from you. If I tell you that apples are good for you, and I don't know if that's still true. They used to say that. And then, then they warned you about pesticides. So I don't know. Ask your doctor if apples are good for you. But if I tell you they're good for you and you believe that, there's nothing for us to do. But the gospel calls for a response for it to do you any good, to save your soul. You must react to the gospel and respond with faith in Jesus who died for you, who was buried, who was raised. I'm putting all of my stock in him. I'm putting all of my confidence in him, no longer myself. There's a huge shift in our lives when we respond to this gospel. Notice Paul said it. I preached it. You received it. He says, this is what you're standing in this gospel and by it, you're being saved. I love verse three. Paul says, I also received it. So Paul's not telling to do something he hadn't already done. When he encountered Christ on that Damascus road, he received the gospel. He received Jesus as his savior. And now he's proclaiming this message. This is the only reasonable response to this good news, to rearrange your whole life. Say, I'll stop trusting everything else. This is the gospel. There is no other way of salvation. I'm now trusting in Jesus who died for my sins, was buried and raised from the dead. So I'm going to ask you today, are you believing in Jesus? Notice this isn't something we're merely to do in the past. We're told here we're to be standing in this gospel. So here's a question. Are you still trusting in Christ or have you shifted to some other gospel? So we talked about how sometimes churches will shift to a, a law instead of the gospel or to be nice instead of the gospel. Our culture has an alternate gospel for you and me. We hear messages like this that promise that that's the way. You hear messages like, hey, embrace your truth. We hear, be true to yourself. The gospel of our age out there is follow your heart or follow your own path, but that won't save you. The true gospel is all about the savior, not you. The gospel is not be true to you. The gospel is trust in Jesus and what he has done for you. But notice now with me this key word in verse two. A lot hinges on this little word, if. And by which you are being saved, if. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul was very well aware that not every claim of being a Christian is true. Paul was very well aware that not every profession of faith in Jesus is genuine. He says it's possible 
that people, even in the church at Corinth, it's possible even in our church, that there are those who have believed in vain. In other words, it was an empty profession. It wasn't real. Now, this is not a teaching that a genuine Christian can lose his or her salvation. The genuinely saved cannot lose that salvation. But this is a teaching that genuine faith lasts. So the person who has believed in Christ some time in the past, if that was a real conversion to Christ, that person will remain in Christ, remain wanting to walk with Christ until Christ calls them home. If a person falls away from their faith, they never had genuine faith to begin with. It was always in vain. So let me ask you this. How do you know if your child, maybe you had a child that made a childhood decision for Christ, how do you know that they're genuinely saved? You say, well, I remember at, at age seven or nine or 12, they said they wanted to become a Christian. They wanted to get baptized. And you were right to celebrate when your child or grandchild spoke such a way. Oh, that's wonderful because that's what you want for them to come to Christ early. But how do you know that that was not in vain? Well, you look at their life right now. They, if they genuinely met Jesus then, they'll still be standing in this gospel right now. This is not something like I take comfort that though they live like a pagan now and they hate the idea of church and discipleship and the Bible, I have no interest in that, but I'm so excited because there were seven and they did something. That's not what the scripture teaches. So we look here, we think we need to be among those who are standing in this gospel, enjoying Christ even all these years later. The mark of a believer is they remain in Christ. Do you want to hear it elsewhere in the scripture? 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Scripture's clear. Jesus was clear that not everybody who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. People make false professions of faith. They might believe in vain. They might believe some facts, but there's no, there's no calling on Jesus in humility for salvation. We're told even the demons can believe the information and they're not saved. Revelation 20 verse 7 says, he who overcomes will inherit these things. And so a person who genuinely believes will be standing in this gospel till Christ calls them home. Genuine faith lasts. It's not that by persevering, you'll earn your salvation. We're just saying that if you have genuine faith, that faith will persevere until Christ comes again. Again, the word of God, you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. So here at the beginning of this new year, we've been reminding ourselves of this gospel, that there is no other good news like this. And we've been reminding ourselves we need to respond by receiving this gospel and continuing to stand in this gospel. Now, as we close, remember this, remember the power of this gospel. The beautiful power of this gospel, and we see this in verses 8 through 11 again, where Paul tells a short version of his testimony. Hear it again. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul here, who's proclaiming the gospel, said, I wasn't always this way. I used to be one who hated the gospel. I used to be the one who hated the idea of church. I was persecuting God's church. I'm unworthy to be an apostle. I'm un unworthy to be a child of God. He's given you his before picture. But then he says, but something happened to me. 
I experience the grace of God. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You likewise also have a before picture. There was the old you that was running in a direction that was actually hostile to God. You lived as one like an enemy of God, but God did not leave you there. He came for you, offered a savior for you, And for most of you in the room, you at some point have have humbled yourself and you've asked Jesus to be your savior, the new leader of your life. And you say, how did that happen? Why Why didn't God condemn me? How am I now a child of God? That was grace. That was his grace. And I love here, Paul, he doesn't even take credit for his great service to the Lord. Notice what he says here. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, listen, I worked harder than any of them. But now this, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So even his great service and preaching and risking his life, he said, I can't get credit for that. That's God's ongoing grace in my life. Any work you see, that also is attributed to God's kindness toward me. And so here's the question for us as we apply this. What is your response to this good news that Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and was raised from the dead on the third third day? What is your response? Today, would you respond to this great love of God? This great hope he's offering you by trusting in Jesus Christ. And then believer, if you've trusted him, can I exhort you? Keep trusting in Jesus. Keep standing in this gospel. You won't find anything better anywhere else. And then this, keep sharing this gospel. We began this message talking about maybe what your life message has been. It's easy for us to get distracted about a lot of things and point people in a lot of directions. But I pray God has used this passage to bring each of us back to, okay, no, this is my life message. What I want people to pick up for me most of all is the gospel that Jesus died for their sins, was buried and raised from the dead. You probably have other goals this year. You probably have some health goals, maybe some financial goals, maybe some relational goals. But would you move to the top of all that? Oh, I have some spiritual goals. Jesus is my life and I need to abide in him all through this year. Every day of this year, hour by hour, I need to abide in Christ that I might bear fruit. That I might share this message and no other message this year. The beauty of the gospel, the gospel of grace. Pray with me. God, that's our longing as your church. To be faithful to this good news. Even if we tried, we could not improve on this. Your amazing, life-changing destiny-shaping gospel. Lord, thank you for it. And Lord, we do pledge ourselves to this gospel until you come again. Lord, I pray it not just for our church, but Lord, for every individual member of the church. And then Lord, I pray for those you brought to this place today, those watching on the live stream even. Lord, I'm confident you've awakened some men and women, some young people to their need for this gospel. Lord, I pray they would not just be interested in it, but Lord, that they would respond with faith in you, calling on you, Lord Jesus, to be their savior. God, do the work of saving today. Lord, we we long for others to have the same peace, the same joy, the same hope. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.